Yeah, I remember some of the OG Food Network stuff, but I was obviously a kid, and so I thought it was all yeah. boring and stupid. But now, man, I could probably watch some Martha Stewart living on repeat. Hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, episode 34. In this episode, we are talking about John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. I am Ryan, and with me is my good buddy and fellow host, Jacob. Yes, hello and welcome to the Better the Bookshelf podcast, our little book club, book cult, book something or other. Episode 34, was it? Yes. I don't remember. It's been so long since we've been in here. <laughs> How are you doing, Ryan? It's been a while. I haven't seen you in a minute, buddy. Uh, I'm doing good. Just, you know, kind of trying to make it through the 100 degree summer uh, and not like sweat everywhere I go, including just... 10 feet to the mailbox. Yeah, that's fair. I think my solution this year, because last year I was, uh, last year I was outdoors a lot. And I yeah. know that we went on a, we went on a float trip that I was a part of last year. I know you kind of just came back I was from, gone. from yeah, doing a float trip gone. this year, but yeah, I was super, I was super outdoorsy last year. And in order to kind of rectify that this year, I've literally stayed inside as much as physically possible, um, which it helps whenever, uh, you don't have a job because I get to just kind of wake up and chill around all day in the uh, in the AC and sort of wait till the sun is at least kind of peaked behind the buildings before I uh, I like scuffle outside to get my business done for the day. So so you're basically like a bat. Uh, uh yeah, kind of, kind of. Yeah, a bat, a bat. Well, on that note, we should probably tell people what we're doing here. In what regard? Like that it's a book podcast that. We're going to do book stuff. Yeah, I guess that's true. You're right. I'm off my game today. It's been so long. It's been, you know, I... It's been I, a month. It, it has been a month. And it is nice to be able to kind of like have that extra time to digest a book. But I, I'll be the first to say it. I'm a little rusty today. I'm a little rusty. I got I to gotta shake off the cobwebs. And this is usually the part in the episode, I think, where I go, it's going to be a pretty standard episode for us today. Yeah. Something like that, right? And then, you know, to be fair, it is going to be a pretty standard episode for us today. I know last time was a little bit more wheels off simply because <laughs> of the nature of the Savage Detectives, man. That whole middle section of that book kind of threw us for a loop. This one definitely is a return to a yes. more typical narrative fiction. Uh, and as such, it's going to be a pretty standard episode. Uh, we're going to tell you a little bit about the author, John Steinbeck. Uh, give you a brief summary, and then just kind of jump into it. I know you've got a lot of questions. I literally yeah. have like no notes whatsoever other than my brief, dirty summary, but it's all Solid. up here. We're going we're going brain games. I wrote down some names because I always have trouble sometimes with like character names when there's a billion characters and they're all kind of like yeah. compacted into one little thing all at once. Sometimes I get people mixed up and all that stuff, but whatever. So pretty typical episode. We'll, we'll go through that, and then, of course, we'll get to our patented three tiers, four if we're uh, burying it in the desert, five if we're going to you know spend some money on a slot machine by selling it, and then losing our money, six if we're going to uh, shoot it in the head or, or rough it up at a you know union rally. But uh, I don't yeah. think it's going to come to that. I don't think and so. And then, of course, we'll tell you what we've got uh, coming up on uh, future episodes. So. Yes, uh, so this is the part where I say that if you haven't read the book, it's weird to listen to a podcast about a book that you have never read before. So go read the book, then come back and listen to the podcast, unless you're the kind of person that is just reckless in that way. And if that is the case, then welcome. You're among friends. Uh, so let's talk about Steinbeck. Uh, he won the Nobel in literature in 1962. 
Uh, he won a Pulitzer for Grapes of Wrath in 1939. Didn't it win a uh, National Book Award or something? It won too? National Book Award. It won like it won, everything. It won right? a it's, ton it's got of all stuff. the all the awards. Yeah. Uh, and it is regarded as his masterpiece by by far. Okay. Um, but he wrote twenty seven books. Um, sixteen of those are novels. Six are nonfiction. Two are short stories. Um, Interesting. I've I obviously have read of Mice and Men. Yep. Uh, never read any nonfiction by him. It's interesting. I haven't either. Um, and I don't. I don't actually even know what what those any books of the subject are. matter. Is. No. Um, but I'm sure the Google could tell us if, if we were... Uh, Get around to if, it. Yeah, we so so much care to do. Uh, but he is of like German-Italian descent. Uh, his grandfather was Johann Adolf Gross Steinbeck. Uh, when his grandfather... Great name. Yeah. Uh, when his grandfather immigrated to the U.S., he dropped the uh, Gross part uh, and just became Steinbeck. Um, but, uh, John lived in, uh, in California, like 25 miles from the coast. So a lot of his books kind of, you know, are in California and that sort of region. Obviously we get, you know, a good feel for that in, uh, in this. Um, he obviously lived during the great depression. Well, actually I should probably tell you he was born in 1902. Uh, so he was an adult in, uh, during the great depression. Yeah. Um, and, uh, he lived, uh, in California at that point in time. At one point he, uh, took a boat out and was, uh, catching crabs and fish. And, uh, he lived, uh, with a family member or, or a friend or something. So they had like a veg garden and, you know, they did all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it did get to a point where, uh, he and his wife needed help. They, uh, were on welfare for a part of time. And on occasion, they stole bacon uh, to make ends meet. Uh, the bacon themselves, or did they steal pigs and turn it into bacon? Uh, no, it's just the uh, the bacon as as it were after it was processed. Fair not, enough. Not the pre-processed bacon. Fair enough. If that's what we're calling pigs now. Pre-processed bacon and Pre- ham? Yeah, pre-processed. Uh, pork? He was, he was a bit of a uh, reveler in the sense that uh, he smoked a lot. Um, he actually died of congestive heart failure and, uh, all major arteries were completely blocked. Uh, I don't know why that's funny. Uh, other than it's hilarious, it seems no, like uh, it's, it seems like a lifelong effort to, it's one to of get the, to yeah, that point. That's one of those things that doesn't just happen. Uh, you don't just wake up and it's like, oh, Jesus, are all of my arteries <laughs> blocked? It's kind of an accumulation. Yeah. So. A lot of bad decisions, uh, accumulate some genetics, maybe eventually just being like, well, I'm gonna die. <laughs> yeah. So he kicked the bucket in 1968, yeah. uh, and he was married three times. Okay. Uh, those those are the notable notables, I think, for for Steinbeck. Do you have for us a summary? I do have a quick and dirty summary. Share? Although when we're still talking about Steinbeck, I was reading yeah. a little bit into like political escapades because he kind of got tied up a little bit in that. In yeah, the, I didn't get into like uh, his in, buddy in Robert, sort of the the 40s and and. He had like some some communist ties, but not entirely. And he, it was kind of like actually all over the place too, because I I'd read somewhere that he was sent out by Times to go kind of report on conditions in Vietnam during yep. the the early part of the Vietnam War. And he was like actually like he was painting like a very sympathetic portrait of the the troops there, and they didn't like that because it was kind of like you know they were expecting a little bit more anti-war sentiment from him in that right. in that one instance. So I don't know. It seemed like he was kind of a little bit all over the place with that, which to be fair is. Perfectly normal. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like so. For sure. All right. 
And he was a handsome dude. If you see pictures of this I do. guy, yeah, I, he, I, he I'm a little bit envious. He wasn't a bad looker. All right. Yeah. <clears throat> the Grapes of Wrath. Here's your dirty summary. The Grapes of Wrath is a story about a family that heads west during the aftermath of the Dust Bowl in hopes of finding work and a better life, of which they find mostly neither. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's pretty much it. It's pretty much it. Shit happens. Shit pe- happens. People bad. move. Yeah. Worse shit happens. And nothing gets resolved. Yeah. That would have been my summary. And people people die. People yeah. People die in the desert. People die before the desert. Babies die. And you're left breastfeeding old men to prevent them from dying. Wow. Way to give away the ending. It's kind of the note that we laid on. Yeah. I don't know if it was necessarily like a twist or anything that we're sort of hanging on there. That's the big sort of aha moment at the end of this book. Okay. Let's start with the end. We never do this. So let's let's go we've ahead. We've done this a couple times. We've never started with the actual We've like, literally done image. this a couple times. When? I don't know. But I'll okay. retroactively go back and find them. And I, if I'm right... Great. If I'm wrong, just cut it out. All right, fine. Uh, but I'm not even going to go to that that length. Okay. So let's talk about the end then. So the end scene is Rose of Sharon or Rose, Rose of Sharon. Sharon. Rose Sharon. What what are we calling her this episode? Rose of Sharon seems it's too it's too ugh, it's too full in your mouth to say for a person. I just say Rose Sharon. It's more like Rosa Sharon to me, like Rosa Sharon. Rosa Sharon. Rosa Sharon. How about just fucking Rose? Okay. Just. Rose. Rose of Sharon. Yeah. So Rose loses the baby, has to escape a flooding boxcar yeah. into a it, break into a barn. Baby daddy already peaced out, by the way. Yeah. I'm gone. Bye. Uh, finds an elderly guy dying of starvation, and she suckles him. Or what is the... She would suck... He would, he would, would suckle. suckle her. Yeah. He yeah. would suckle at her breast. Not sure which way that verb goes. I, I've I think I think he's he's the sucky, so he would be doing the suckling. Okay, being the sucky. Okay, well, so highly she's, technical. She's feeding him. Yeah, and like stroking his hair in sort of this ultimate like grand gesture of charity, right? Right, and laced with just like intense trauma at all the events leading up to this point, and having just recently sort of lost her baby too. So yeah. yeah. So uh, did you do you have thoughts about like that scene, that image at all? Yeah, it was just as uh, I don't. It was just a very strange way to kind of like conclude everything because that's you know typically you're in most stories like this, you're kind of left with something. A little bit, or I feel like you're left with something a little bit more like all-encompassing, yeah, and kind of left to sort of take in everything that's happened up until that point. And this one, it's more so just kind of like a continuation of things, of bad things happening, and then yeah. we get to the end, and it's just like maybe here's a little good, but it's in the strangest way possible. Yeah. So I think for for me, it was like the perfect summary of of everything that's that's kind of gone on because. Here you have like uh, a situation where, I mean, it's just it's just not like a uh, a thing that uh, that people like do, right? Is like adults don't <laughs> don't drink breast milk. Yeah, right? yeah, that's true. So throughout the book, you get all of these instances of like people having to uh, sort of debase themselves um, 
in both an act of, of charity, but also in, in acts of need, right? Yeah. And that guy's starving to death, and, you know, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't too proud to say no. Uh, Rosa Sharon wasn't, uh, you know, too, like, I guess, proud or awkward to, like, not offer what or she sure, had. sure, like, heartless. Right, to, yeah. If and, she could help. I mean, that's, that's, like, the whole book is, like, this you know, these small acts of charity and coming together in, in community. Um, and so I thought it was it was deeply disturbing because, you know, obviously that's not like an acceptable thing in society, especially I would assume at that point in time. So it's it's an awkward image, but I think it really does like encompass okay. all the sort of welfare and and poor, uh, helping the poor. Sure, and the all camaraderie that, kind of that yeah. kind of exists within the communities of the at that point destitute and and needy and just sort of trying to band together to survive yes okay that's fair uh definitely though one of the weirdest things that i've i've sure. like i've it was one of those times you close the book closing and you're like, note just, the reflect hell? on the last you know seven eight pages that you read and that just kind of stands out to you as something strange yeah 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 i don't think we've really gotten that feeling other than maybe Let's see. What's another book? Uh, Blood Meridian was kind of kind of had that same like strange, yeah, imi- strange imagery left on with the judge kind of dancing naked. I can't. I beat death. That's true. <laughs> That's judge. true. So, yeah, that was kind of something that I would relate to imagery wise, where you're just kind of left with a not totally unsettling note, but just like a strange, just a strange leave off. Yeah. Um. So to like pull things like back up. On a structural level. Way back. Yeah. Um, there were some things in this book that uh, I think are, are sort of bold choices, and I was wondering what you thought of them. But okay. these like periodic, like I'll call them interludes, where yeah. you, you pull out from the from the like narrative structure and you get these big, like sort of philosophical arches, um, either, you know, art arcs. I don't know why I said arches. Where you know either they're sort of summarizing like all the movement in the region, what's going on in the depression, uh, what people think, uh, philosophies about you know just mankind, uh, yeah. all of that kind of stuff. What did you think about those those like interjections? I it was actually it's one of those things where it, it, if done right, it can be great. If done wrong, it's one of those like it can be a jarring thing from a narrative because I yeah. I do like sometimes like being up like like a in this instance where we're following a family. And so I like kind of the up close and personal narrative. I like what's going on in their life and I don't necessarily need a lot of like overarching things. But in this instance, it's nice too, because I don't have a lot of context on the great depression and sort of the situation. And I guess kind of the environment surrounding that because I didn't live through it. We're several generations removed from it. It's just kind of one of those things that you're taught very tangentially, uh, unless you, I guess, specialize in sort of historical fields and early 20th century history. And so I felt that it was really nice to kind of get a little bit more um, like drawn out context. Cause normally when I go into reading a book or sometimes when I go into reading a book, if it's a subject that I feel like it's like, Oh, you know, I know that this is going to be in here and I don't really know a lot of like the background around yeah. it. Like I want to go out and look into things so that I can kind of get more of that nuance in the book. And it was nice that we kind of had that sort of built in there for us to kind of give us that perspective. I, I didn't feel like it was so jarring out of our sort of, you know, linear narrative that it that it kind of take took me out and i don't know i I didn't mind it i didn't mind it at all really i absolutely loved it 
you know, normally I don't like when the narrative like style transitions in the middle well, we get, of a yeah, book. Like narrative changes or just viewpoint changes can sometimes be strange. Yeah, and and because you sometimes lose like the the feel of something, right? Like there's a certain yeah. texture that uh, that like language has as you're going through, and obviously this book with the the way that uh, that Steinbeck handles. Um, uh, language in the South and, you know, his phonetic spelling of, sure. of things, you know, there's a certain way of uh, certain texture you get from reading that. Um, and then when you pull out to these, to these other uh, sort of interludes, um, somehow he maintains uh, some like interconnectivity with kind of what's going on. And, and, Typically, the way that he did it was that he would tie in like the theme from uh, whatever is happening to the family with yeah. sort of like this is happening everywhere. Yeah, how this and affects this is, everyone. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, they, he also used it sometimes to advance time, which I thought was was really clever. Um, where you sort of get this uh, this sort of fast forward um, to whatever next situation you know the Jodes find themselves in. And yeah, I just, it was one of the times where I, I really sat down and read a book and appreciated the ever-living hell out of the structure that, that he created using these different narrative types. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, just taking the story that's being told a, aside for a second and, and whether or not, you know, what you felt about kind of the events and everything that, you know, goes within that. If you just look at kind of the choices made behind, like, how he's going to tell the story and how the book's going to be written and how we're going to deal with this dialogue and do all these things. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I tend to agree. I, I don't think there was any down note here from stylistic and structural choices that go into this book, which sometimes can be, I know for me personally, and for you several times on this podcast, like we've liked books, we've right. liked their idea. Savage Detectives. I mean, that's yeah, a yeah. it's it's still in our mind from last Ryan where we yeah. kind of have this complete this complete departure because in that book, you know, we kind of had this, okay, we're going to do this narrative structure, we're going to tell a story, and then we're going to jump out and have this kind of attempt to do the same effect where we go out and kind of give this more uh, widespread approach to to what these two characters are doing or to kind of give like a, a, a more of a top-down view or not a top-down, but kind of give views from different angles. And it didn't work. Yeah. It was way too disruptive. It was way too difficult to try and piece everything together. And it was put together in a way that kind of the the time was was kind of all over the place and windy. And then you have yep. something like this where it's attempting to do very similar things in the sense of, give you perspective without physically taking you through all of these stories right, and like, right. like, okay, we have to go chronological. So here's all this happens here. And then we're back to the, to the Jodes and then this happens here. And then we're back to the Jodes. Instead, it's just kind of like, Hey, whoosh, zoom out for a sec, give you context whoosh, back in. Yep. And it's, I like it because it, uh, it reminded me a lot of, um, God, what book did it remind me of? I don't know, but, um, like sometimes when you're watching uh, like uh, a, a TV show or a series or something, it those little like recaps. Like sometimes you don't need them, but yeah, like yeah. you do get recaps just to kind of like set a context. And not that I need that in every book, but a lot of times when I set a book down, and this book I I think was kind of the one of the more disjointed reads that I read, where I would kind of read like uh, a good deal, and then I wouldn't pick it up for an, another couple of days. Yeah, um, yeah. So a lot of times, like when I do that with books, I have to find myself kind of like. <laughs> zooming back and, and resetting the scene. Sure. And like, yeah, it was, it was incredibly helpful in that sense of like keeping your mind engaged in everything that's going on and sort of the, the, the context of what's surrounding them and everybody around. So 
yeah, I think structurally, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I think that despite the fact that we were talking about this a little bit earlier, despite the fact that it's, you know, it's, it's one of the more sizable books that we've read, actually, yeah. you know, it's, it's 450, it's, you know, somewhere in that range, 450, 500 pages close, yeah. but it didn't read like that at all. No. Um, it was very like succinct. Yeah. And I, part of that is that it's so dialogue heavy that it, yeah. that, you know, probably is more like 300 pages of actual text. If yeah. you were to, you know, c- condense it into a, a book that has the sort of average amount of dialogue. Yeah. Uh, I don't yeah. know that, that we have read any other book with as much dialogue now that I think about it. Um, no, no, I I think this one far and away has has the most. So I think that's that's part maybe of it. Maybe Faulkner, but maybe maybe. But that was yeah. that was less dialogue and more kind of like you know stream of consciousness. Yes. Still. So. But so I think that that helps just the like interplay between characters and the sort of like feeling that things are developing right in front of you. Yeah. Um, I think that drives things forward for sure. Um, but yeah, I fe- I sat down I think that I finished this book in three, maybe four sittings. Um, and that fourth one was like, I knocked out like one of those short little chapters. Yeah. Uh, just when I had a few minutes sitting somewhere. So yeah, for me, this was just one of those books. Like I could just plow through. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was an easy read. I think it was a little bit more disjointed. I think it was like six sessions, but okay. that was less about the readability of it and more just about kind of like what things, you got going things, on? Yeah. Things kind of just popped up whenever <laughs> you know. I've uh, got a baby in the house, so you know yeah. sometimes you best laid plans get uh, changed. Yeah, um, you don't say. Yeah, but no, I mean it was it was definitely an easy read, which was surprising, but wasn't surprising um, because you know one of the big things we talked about in this book, kind of leading up to, it, so, oh, it's Grapes of Wrath, it's Steinbeck, it's, yeah, it's required reading so often, and I know I had. Originally, I had thought that I had read this book before because I was like, "Oh, we'll go through and I'll do a reread." And yeah. As I'm like reading through this, I'm like, "Oh, this seems familiar. Maybe I maybe maybe it's been so long since I read this, you know, back in high school or whatever sure, that yeah. I just forgot it all." And then I'm halfway through the book and I went, "Nope, nope. It was just my cement. That was the only Steinbeck book that I had ever read." Dang. And uh, it was interesting because the whole first half that I'm reading this book, like in the back of my mind, I'm still thinking. I'm like trying to. I'm trying to kind of reconnect those uh long lost synapses uh from years of just neglect and drinking and whatever age um general aging uh that has long since depleted those uh precise (laughs) memories and i kept trying to imagine myself as a 14 a 15 year old kid reading this book and trying to really uh reflect in in ways that uh I can now, having you know been a, a much more sophisticated and older and established gentleman such as myself, and I feel like it's 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 interesting, but it's kind of crazy to me that this is a, a such a heavy required reading book um, for teenagers in high school. It's just when I think about the things that I had to read in high school, you know, you have your Great Gatsby's, you yeah. have your Old Man in the Seas, of Mice and Men, things like that. This does kind of stand out a little bit from that. It's quite a bit topically and just overall message dense that would not have resounded with me at all at 15, probably. Yeah, I think I think I agree. And, you know, I th- it's it's weird to me sometimes the the things that are required reading, right? Like I imagine 
that this book is on there because of its historical aspects. Sure. And I'm sure that, you know, schools try to, you know, tie in like the timing with history lessons and, you know, reading certain things. Right. Yeah. Uh, I can remember things like that. I can't remember exactly, you know, what books or classes we had crossover, but it's definitely a thing. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't think that I would have enjoyed that at, you know, 16 or 18. And I think for a couple different reasons, one, like you've never had to fend for yourself, or at least I didn't thankfully at, at that age. Right. Um, so I, I didn't know what it was like to, to have to worry about like where food was coming from. Um, you know, even though I had a job, it was for, you know, stuff that I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, you've kind of also not quite gone through that phase where you know, you're still part of a family unit, but you want to break free, uh, like Al does. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there, there, there's not a lot to relate to, I guess is, is the point. Uh, so yeah, I, it's, it's interesting why this would be on the, uh, required reading list. Um, let's see what, what books are on the uh, Oh, you're looking required. up required reading list books to see yeah, if we can find a common if, tie? Yeah, I wondered if there was like a, uh, if there was a, a pseudo universal one. one. There's a star report card recommended book list. Um, it's probably as close as we're going to get. Okay. Um, so this is kind of weird. Okay. I wouldn't have guessed any of these things. So, well, I don't know. Okay. Well, start listing them off and we'll see if this is where we're thinking. It is. Okay. I'm, I'm going to start with eighth grade. Okay. That's a little lower, but okay. that's fine. Just hear me out. There's there's some of these books I think uh, are interesting. So Treasure Island. Read it. Yeah. Uh, Around the World in 80 Days. Okay. Yeah. Read it. Uh, heat. I've never heard of that one. The only Heat I know L- is Lupita. Val Kilmer in uh, <laughs> yes. Al Pacino. Good <laughs> Not movie. that one. Okay. Uh, Dovey Co. Nope. The Hundred Dresses. Nope. Uh, Phineas Cade or Gage, a gruesome but true story about brain science. No, see, a lot of these might be after our time, though. The true, the door in the wall. Don't know that one. Nope. The Diary of Anne Frank. Yeah, obviously. In eighth grade. Um, just saying. I mean, it's it's. Here's the deal. Like, it's it's obviously dark. Yeah. But it's not like it's not like over the top gruesome or anything. It's it's not something that it's. You know, when you're in eighth grade, you're starting to learn about world history. You know, you're not immune to, uh, well, I'm trying to think. Seventh grade, we had Texas history, obviously, because, of course, Texas is amazing. So you have to have a whole year of dedicated history to it. But yep. I believe in eighth grade was when we first started getting into world history. And so, of course, World War II would have uh, at least made uh, like a chapter. For sure. There, perhaps. So. Uh, so then there's a bunch of books in high school that I'd, I've never heard of. Okay. Uh, then you've got Pride and Prejudice. Wow. Okay. No, never read that. Uh, Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah. Uh, Great Expectations. Okay. So, uh, but this is like these are all like classics, like kind of King Lear. Okay. Oh God, I forgot about Shakespeare. Oh uh, yeah, we read a lot of Shakespeare. Yeah. Begrudgingly, I was not into Shakespeare in high school. I don't know if I am into Shakespeare now uh, because I haven't touched Shakespeare since high school. Shakespeare's tough. I took I took a a whole class on Shakespeare in college, and I might have mentioned this in a previous episode. Uh, but I bought that giant anthology I that's see down that. there. It's it impressive. Is, it is probably what do you say? Almost four inches thick, three inches thick. 
It's substantive. It I'll is, tell you that. It is his entire collected work. So sure. All, all of his poetry. I would not want to put that his, in a backpack. All of his plays. And look it around. Well, after I got done with that, with that class, uh, fortunately, my bed frame broke, and I was able to utilize its size to uh, brace my bed uh, for the last couple years of college. So that's so, what it's there for, in a yeah, pinch. Yeah, there is a good crease right through we one just, of the covers. We just incensed a lot of Shakespeare truthers yeah, out there. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, Shakespeare's, uh, I would like to say it's fine, but I feel like that would be disingenuous, disingenuous of me to say because I literally have not touched any Shakespeare since high school, and I was not of the mind to enjoy it then, and probably not now as well. Okay, so I'm gonna do like a, I'm gonna do like a quick fire, rapid is, fire. Let's this go. is this is English four for uh like the Midland uh, Odessa, or actually it's just Midland Independent School District okay. out, out in West Texas. Uh, I'm just gonna go through notable ones. 1984, Tale of Two Cities, Beowulf, Brave New World, uh, Clockwork Orange, Crime and Punishment, Dracula, Frankenstein, Gulliver's Travels, Hamlet, Heart of Darkness. By Joseph Conrad, yeah, yeah. Uh, Wait, was that a? Were you just surprised it was on there? Or yeah, did you not heard it? Oh okay. no, I, I like, just I was surprised. <laughs> it was surprised it was on there. Yeah. Uh, Henry V. Yeah. Uh, King Lear. Yeah. Mm, Oedipus Rex. Yeah. Uh, Pride and Prejudice. Okay. Canterbury Tales. Cool. Yeah. Uh, the Iliad. What you're just throwing Chaucer out as well? Just I had I had another that was just Chaucer. Well, my sister is officially just done listening was, to our it podcast. Was bad. I, I, yeah, uh, the Inferno uh, and Weathering Heights. So here's uh, Weathering Heights. Weathering, yes. Weathering, Weathering Heights. Yes, it's not Weathering Heights. Well, it's an, it, we live in Texas. It Weathering is weather, Heights. It is Weathering Heights. Fair enough. Uh, but here's here's my gripe with. But it's no like, grapes of wrath, no Steinbeck, no, no, no of mice and men. And I sw- I'm, I'm sure that could be in like the English three or yeah, two. Maybe. Who knows? Yeah. But the point is, it's it's weird the the like books that are required reading, um, and you know if if you look at a library, obviously there's a ton of shit that like that has been written, and you know everybody's gonna have like differing ideas of of what is important. But the thing that is like consistently missing from from reading lists uh, is is always like modern fiction. Yeah, contemporary. Right? Yeah, it's never in there. And and I think that when you're a kid and you read a book like Grapes of Wrath, even something that is written well and has a lot of good things about it, you think that all literature is like this that. stuffy. Well, not that this is stuffy, but it's old. It Dated. Is, yeah. yeah. And so I, th- I think that's my other thing, as you asked your question about w- whether or not I would appreciate that. I think, no, just because there's like, you're, you don't encounter things that you necessarily understand yet yeah. um with some some exception but yeah the one yeah. thing i have with like required reading lists that always bothered me was it always felt like uh it was you had to instead of just going all right here's kind of the fundamentals of these styles and and we can kind of work in things it's like all right well you got to read you have to read these first and then you have to read these first as though it was kind of this pyramid building up right. to something um but the reality of it was is there was never any I mean, you could you can understand style and 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 sort of uh, choices and things that you would get in there, but 
it was like, like I get it, cool, Beowulf and Grendel, that was like a really, you know, it's a historical story and it's famous, but what context does it have to me in the current moment in time? And that's not to shit yeah. on Beowulf, because I love Beowulf. That was just the first thing that popped in my mind when I was thinking about the reading list as a kid. Yeah, I mean, we could we could do a whole episode just on like canon, right? And and what yeah. what people value. Uh, but I, I think part of that like reason is that stories are, are built on other stories, right? So That's like, true. they're perfect example. And my I'm gonna out my poor wife here, but like, uh, she didn't she never went to church when she was a kid. Sure. So she doesn't have any. Um, even now as a, as an adult any context of like biblical stories References. right so like yeah. you know we watch a movie we read a book and i'm like oh there's a biblical allusion to you know whatever whatever and she's like i have no idea so like we've gone through and i've you know kind of like told her these things because sometimes it's it's important to realize you know that um that people are lending from other works, you yeah. know, to, to build on, on something. And certainly, I mean, hell Casey in this, in this book is very much a Christ figure. Yeah. Um, so you have that sort of, that sort of narrative going on and it is very like, uh, tongue in cheek because he even says he, like he's Christ wandering the wilderness for 40 days. Yeah. Uh, but, um, and it, that he does that and, and, uh, but through his actions where he's not so explicit and uh and about all of that you know he s- does present himself as a Christ figure for the unionization stuff at the end yeah uh anyway what did you think of like Casey's like philosophical break with like religion like did did you see him as like a a thoughtful guy um who you know, sort of had a direction or did you see him just sort of as a guy like sort of fumbling through trying to find a new ideology? It did kind of feel like the latter there. Yeah. That it was just sort of a disillusionment. Yeah. And uh, yeah. when you kind of take that in account with sort of the situation going on and you find this sort of new, oh, yeah, it, it's not surprising when they get to California that he comes, that he becomes like kind of really attached to this whole union thing and, and right. sort of leading that and, and being a front runner in that because it's just trying to find some sort of moral identity or moral sort of movement to, to not necessarily fill that void, but to sort of create that opportunity for him to, I don't know if, if necessarily like change lives, but to give an opportunity to be in service in some way, Yeah, whether, whether or not it's, you know, the, the, the best thing possible, but to, to, feel passionate about something enough to kind of be in a service of it. So yeah, it did kind of feel to me that he was just kind of like a wandering rambling guy, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, now that I think about it a little bit more, yeah, the kind of like allegorical Christ-like figure in our story and, yeah, you know, his sacrifice for, for uh, Tom and I don't know. Yeah. You know, I think that what Steinbeck does with Casey is, is really interesting. Like as a character, he is able to add the sort of social commentary about, you know, what's what's going on when the Jodes as characters are uh, not that they're not aware of, you know, what's what's going on, but they're not the kind of family that would articulate that or act sure. upon it. Yeah. And so then you have you have Casey, which, you know, obviously acts as, you know, a, a, a 
vehicle to be able to say those things, but then also to exhibit a, another side of this this whole westward movement, which was sort of the dissent and and uh, you know unionization and yeah. uh, all the all the tough things there. But you got a quote for me? I, I do. So Casey had all of these like little uh, little like you know philosophy Isms. things all all throughout, but this is one that he said like right before he died. Um, and, uh, he says, anyway, you do what you can. And he says, the only thing you got to look back at is every time there's a little step forward, she may, I don't know how to read this. Yeah, but, this but, is, I, right, I, I appreciate the attempt at the yeah, actual dialect. I'm going to, I'm going to try to read it like that. Just stick with me. The only thing you got to look at is that every time there's a little step forward, she may slip a little, but she never slips clear back. You can prove that, he says. And that makes the whole thing right. And that means they wasn't no waste, even if it seemed like they was. And so he was he's talking about the efforts to sort of pick at the the farm yeah. and like progress and getting That was a good know, job reading, by the way. Thank it's you. Just like a true blue oaky. Yeah. Right there, a true blue shit heel or something. But uh <laughs> shit heel. I don't I don't think that's the preferred nomenclature. Yeah, but it's fun to say. <laughs> uh, it is topical. Um, so I I got to thinking uh, as as I was kind of reading his his philosophy sections and that one specifically, like, is all progress good progress? And even even if that means you sort of get knocked down a peg, that you're still moving forward. So. My question to you, based on on that sort of mentality, is: Are the Jodes better off in California, or should they have just stayed where they were? I mean, oh yeah, it's one of those things. Progress for the sake of of progress. I mean, it's not like you can't demonstrably say like, oh, they're way better off in their situation, but at the same time, you can't say that they would have been any better off had they stayed. It's it's kind of one of those when you exist in an environment or you exist in a situation with limited options yeah. and you simply just have to follow one, uh, then <laughs> you're kind of just bound to bound to that, you know, that path or bound to at least seeing that out to some extent. So, you know, the, the situation of not really having anything to strive for, maybe, maybe even just the, you know, early on kind of that, positive outlook in and of itself could be kind of a, you know, a, an enhancer to their situation that they obviously wouldn't have if they didn't have something in front of them to say, Hey, well maybe, you know, if you go out to California, we can find work out there. Well, they're not here, but we can work here. Well, Oh, there's, you know, Hooverville sucks, but there's this other place that has a little bit better outlook and it's ran by people and you don't have sheriffs everywhere and all this. And you kind of get on this sort of step to step progress of having something in front of you and whether or not things turn out to be, you know, the best situation for you, you know, motivators are in and of themselves, not like a placebo effect, but you you may be willing to kind of like hold on a little bit more to strive a little bit harder for something if you have that sort of carrot on a stick in front of you, even if it's not entirely uh, material, because, you know, as we see in the book that they get out there and not only do things not really get better for them in a lot of ways they get worse you know grandma yeah. and grandpa are dead and we we lose the baby and everything's just kind of 
in shambles. Tom has to kill somebody again, and yeah, it's just it's just a mess. And so maybe it's one of those things that uh, progress is always such a. And I, this is an idea, or not an idea, but something I've thought about, and maybe I'm just stupid, but. It's like progress is always one of those things that you can go back and retroactively assign to things. Like, oh, we made progress because you're at point A to point B. Yep, yep. And, you know, whether or not something that you're going to do or something that you step out or plan to do for, and, you know, that's not a terribly difficult idea as well. We can plan to do this and we think we're making progress with it or we think we're working towards something and then after the fact you find out, well, we weren't working towards anything and nothing's better off and all this is not, <laughs> not progress at all. And so we'll just not say that it was progress. And yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's, uh, I understand the idea of constantly trying to work to improve things and whether or not that you actually reach that outcome or that goal or whatever it is that you're envisioning or set forth is, kind of secondary to the motivating and moving effect of working towards something can have on a person or a group of people or anything like that. So let's word vomit. No, no, no. I, I think what you said kind of like starts to bring this into like, I think the heart of the conversation that I wanted to have about this book topical. Yeah. We're getting topical. Yeah. All right. So, so I love this. Here's the deal. Yeah. I feel like we, I feel like we always look at things, especially like this, where it's so foreign to our current like state of being or to our current existence or even our experience or anything like that, that you're always trying to grab onto things that you can relate because that makes things so much more, it, it kind of elevates a level of understanding that you can have. You can have a better appreciation for the characters in the book or the story that's being told. If you can draw parallels and, and find sort of tangential things that, are either happening or have happened to you or or just in the world at large that you at least kind of have a cursory knowledge of to pull from to create those sort of interconnections. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why, you know, still three, four, 500 years later after some books, you can, you can still just like, it's still so relevant because there's so much, there is so much in, in human experience and human sort of stories that, you may not, it may not be the exact scenario, but it's so relevant in the situations, the adversities, the things that people do to kind of adapt and overcome and, and deal with these sorts of things that it is, it is relevant even today and it's topical and for sure, that's why we're going to talk about it. Yeah. Topical so, time. All right. So I was able to, to kind of get drawn into a couple different subjects and I, my overall impression about some of the the things in this book, the the welfare, the um, sort of mass migration, um, and just sort of the business uh, ethics. I think those were the those were the things that really jumped out at me um, because those are still things that we are wrestling with at this very moment, and and we'll always be wrestling with throughout the for remainder sure. of human existence for all intents and purposes it's, it so, is it is intrinsic it seems to cohabitation and coexistence absolutely so i wanted to start with talking about the thing that forced them out which is really sort of like the um technology uh and i guess you could say like automation uh and sort of like business ethics because um I've been in 
uh, I, I've been at a company where uh, we've offshored people that have worked for me. Uh, you know, and these are sort of, these are college, uh, like professional yeah. kind of, kind of jobs where, you know, you can't just walk in off the street. Um, uh, you have to have years of experience to do this and you almost always have to have a, a college degree, uh, to even be considered, uh, for the job in the first place. And, um, because of, you know, cost savings, we started moving those jobs um, to an overseas location because it was almost a third of the of the cost. You get sure. somebody with a master's degree, uh, and you know there were there were positive and, and negative things about that. Right? Uh, we talk about it in in today's politics with uh, manufacturing moving to to China to Mexico, uh, and you know especially like cars. Right? That's that's been a bit that's been a big deal. Um, and one of the things that, uh, the Republicans have won on the last two elections was to, you know, bring, bring jobs back and that sort of thing. And there was never a plan in, in this book. And it seems like in the invention of, uh, of the tractor, and then you even get the reference of the cotton gin, uh, you know, which we, we know displaced people even further out of, out of those jobs. But as we create new things in in business or we look for efficiency by replacing workforces, do you have any thoughts on what obligations uh, business leaders or businesses or even maybe uh, political leaders have in considering the impact on people that you know work those jobs or live in those places? Uh, is is there an obligation in, in your mind to come up with some sort of plan other than ramming a tractor into somebody's house and saying, get? Go and get. We've, <laughs> we've replaced you. Yeah, that's tough. Um, because we will always be, I, I just, just from the basic distribution of people in general, we will always have sort of a lower degree of a workforce where you not yeah. necessarily totally unskilled labor, but um, labor that you've seen kind of over the course of, of technological improvement start to get phased out. Or even in your case where you have skilled labor um, where it just financially gets phased out because right. you, you have that international connectivity now where it's, you know, it used to be, it's like, Oh man, it's so difficult. Like you're not going to outsource you're not going to outsource a, a position when you don't have that sort of like on-demand availability of being able to talk to that person. Yeah. Now that's not even a, a question, you know, any time of the day, anywhere. And so you have this sort of, it's, it, one part of me is like, well, when you take a business or you have sort of an industry, you want them to, I mean, they have to innovate. Obviously, every right. industry thinks, okay, we have to innovate because our competitors are going to innovate. And if we yep. don't innovate and we don't allow ourselves to try to find the most efficient and you know, positive ways to improve our cost efficiency, you know, improve all of these metrics in order to kind of grow, grow, grow. Cause it's, you know, you reach that point, I guess, when you're such a large corporation or, or a company or anything like that, that you can't just, you know, Oh, we'll just, we'll just grow 10% every year or something. Right, right? Like right. you have to do things in order to kind of improve your bottom line besides just, we'll sell more, right. <laughs> we'll sell right. more corn this year. Um, and so like, I understand from a, company standpoint of saying like we have to always be trying to 
improve our bottom line. And as cold as that may sound, it's, it's, it's the honest truth because your competitors may not be, whether or not you take a hard stand on, you know, we value our workers and so we're going to pay them more, we're going to do all this other stuff, your competitors might price you out of business in yeah. doing that. And so all of your scruples and all that are good and great when you're filing for bankruptcy and you're insolvent. Sure. Um, and so it's tough. So it's you, now you sort of get into this, this mindset of, okay, well, is there a way to sort of rig the game then where everyone that competes in this industry has to play by this certain amount of rules so that nobody's, yep. nobody's cutting costs at the expense of like other industries. And then you kind of get into this nebulous area of saying like, okay, well, if you have somebody now that sets the rules, who is overseeing the person who's setting the rules? Right, How do we ensure right. that the person that's setting the rules isn't being manipulated by some outside force or anything like that? Yep. And so logically, that's when you come back to the idea of like, well, you let them self-regulate because if you attempt to have these sort of rules and these things set in place in order to prevent this, you know, in this mass improvement at the expense of like, oh, we still have all of these kind of like these jobs available for people. You right, know, right. We're not going to let you like cut costs and do all these other crazy things. And we're going to do all this. You, I feel like the more that you centralize that power, the, the it just jumps up in tenfold in percentage of likelihood that that is going to be manipulated for one or another gain. You, you, sure. when you centralize power, you create a more powerful entity and you create an easier target for manipulation rather than just saying, all right, these industries are competing against each other. And I understand that the idea of like, Oh, perfectly open free market. We're not going to yep. regulate anything. We're just going to let dump all your shit in the river, do whatever you want. Like, right. obviously that is not exactly a, an appropriate approach to it as well, but right. That's yeah, tough, man. It's tough. I'm like, so I'm one of those people that's so just kind of, and it, it seems, you know, kind of a fence riding move, but it's, you're kind of like, uh, I don't really know exactly where the point lies where you say, okay, this is right and this is wrong. Because yep. at the end of the day, your responsibility as a, if you're a company, right, your responsibility is to the people that I guess, you know, that that are invested in you, that yeah. rely on you, the people that still remain that rely on you for right. jobs and anything like that. I don't know. It's tough, man. It's tough. It's, it's, it's hard to think about. But at the same time, you know, you feel for people that essentially – you know, you spend all this time and energy kind of learning a trade or learning a craft, and then you're just, you know, it's just pulled out from under your feet, whether it's, oh, we're sending the jobs overseas because, right. you know, you guys cost too much, and, you know, we can pay a third of the cost, and and, and we don't have as strict regulations. That, that's yep. a little bit more shitty and shady, but I don't know, man. It's tough. Yeah, it, you know, it's... <laughs> it is it is tough, and, you know, I, th I think it, it boils down to just sort of like, you know, who is your master at the end of the day, right? And companies are not by their very nature ethical beings, right? Right. They they would be benefited greatly by being able to be unethical. Therefore, in my experience and you know, you could see it in news, you can see it if you work in in any company of any size, that if there is not a rule governing a certain thing, businesses will generally do the thing that benefits the bottom line the most versus the, you know, customer that they're serving, the people, sure. the people that, you know, keep the company moving forward, you know, all of that kind yeah. of stuff. And 
that's just the the nature of you know of things. It's why it's part of the reason you know that we got into the the housing crisis, right? And like I've been in banking ever since the crash, so like I'm very much like attuned to this. You've got to see all of the fun little aftermath. Yeah, and so like the U.S. government created the uh, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau (CFPB). And um, their thing was they, you know, dump all these regulations on, you know, banks and mortgage lenders and say, you, you can't make, you know, these ridiculous, like, you know, five-year arm loans where you pay, you know, uh, 10, 1% interest and then it inflates to 15% in the sixth year. And, yeah. you know, we, we create a foreclosure situation. Uh, you know, they, you can't skimp on underwriting stuff anymore. So there are all these rules that went into like the mortgage space that contributed to not, not the exclusive reason for, but contributed to the conditions that caused, you know, the 2008 crash. And then, um, ever since, you know, the market has, has recovered, the housing market has, has recovered. Um, and now you're getting like, we're starting to take down CFPB, right? Um, on the inside of that, when CFPB was created, it was just an onslaught of like audits, and yeah. e- even now, like I- I've got I've got eight different audit things going on right now. It it is an insane amount of work. I'm I'm almost doing more work about explaining what I do than actually doing the thing. Yeah. and so you can like go in the opposite direction to the point where you're now losing efficiency and causing bigger risk because you know you're no longer you know, focused on the point of, of what's going on. Yeah. But I, I do think that we, and I think it falls into the political realm um, because I, again, don't think that businesses um, can electively be ethical things. Um, I think I, 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 I'm talking, I'm talking generally, I think they can make ethical decisions, but I don't think that a company is going to say, we, in the long we are, run, we are well because they're gonna. If if you only make ethical decisions, your chance of success is probably not as great as somebody who is willing to do the thing that is financially sound, even if it's if it's not completely ethical, right? I mean, that's 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 a perfectly fair uh, assumption. That in the long run, the companies that find themselves being better off are the ones that have not necessarily put the most ethical decision possible at the forefront of their mind. Every time it comes time to make a decision Yeah, from time to time, they could change their mind. But yeah, I would say in a long run situation that, yeah, that seems, that seems like a reasonable, um, but at the same time, the thing is, is like some industries, you know, you're uh, at the end of the day, what makes money is what serves the public, right? Like in some things like the products you make or the things that you make. And so, the public will be the deciding factor on whether or not something is successful and what mm-hmm. you create and produce. And if you have sort of a public consciousness, I mean, you see it now all the time. Like, um, I mean, even within the last like 15 years, uh, entrepreneurships and startups, you have such a higher degree of, um, I guess just socially aware companies and all these yeah. other things because you kind of have a different mindfulness of your public. Cause the thing is, is a company can create something all at once and they can be as unethical as they want to creating it. If people don't want it, they're not going to buy it. And you're not going to make any money. Right. So at the end of the day, it is, it is that ebb and flow. Like you can, I, and, and that's what I think is the biggest restraining thing. I don't think regulation. And I mean, obviously regulation does 
do some to kind of stem and curb yep. um, those more negative uh, potential things that can happen. But at the end of the day, sort of public consciousness and public choices in what's being made um, for the products that you buy, um, the services that you use, things like that, are going to be more powerful in keeping that kind of those tendencies in line um, in a lot more powerful and effective ways. Because if people don't want your product because you do X, Y, Z, that's going to hurt your, your bottom line more than you can't do this because, you know, a regulation says you can only, you know, have 3.25% lead right. in your chocolate candy versus public consciousness being like, you have lead in your chocolate candy. We're not going to buy your product. You're going to lose money. You need to have more ethical practices in order to present a product to us that we're going to buy. Well, and, and, and generally ethics aren't enforced until they become a problem, right? Yeah. So I was reading an article today um, about, you know, just microplastics. So, yeah. um, like one of the biggest things, um, that is polluting the ocean right now are plastics. And, and there's been a lot of discussion lately in the scientific community about these microplastics, which are basically particles that are less than like five millimeters. Sure. And, uh, you know, they've been found in massive quantities in all sorts of sea life and in the, literally in the deepest parts of the ocean, we are finding plastic waste. Um, and you know, so we create this product that allows us to, to package things. It allows us to create barriers, um, uh, you know, for windows for, I mean, plastic is literally everywhere you could, you could possibly imagine. I mean, our way of life would not be possible without it. No, it, it is a, it is a transformative, uh, product, but nobody ever sat down and thought what's going to happen in. 50 years sure. after this. And I don't know when plastic was invented, but it's probably been around, I would guess, 100 plus years at this yeah, point. 20th century. Um, but we didn't really start mass producing that stuff until I would assume like the mid like 20th century. The, I, you know, I'm obviously not an expert, but that seems reasonable. But so no, nobody thought what's going to happen if this stuff gets gets into the environment and gets polluted, right? Same thing with like global warming and we don't need to discuss the merit of, of whatever, but you know, we, we implement, um, these, you know, industrial, uh, things without ever really considering once this gets up to a global scale, what's going to happen. And this article I think is, is really cool. Um, so this, this kid was part of, um, like Google has this like science fair thing and his name is Fionn, uh, Ferrier, Ferrier, Nailed it. Uh, anyway, he's Irish. He's 18. Uh, and basically, he, he devised this method for using uh, like ferrofluids. You know what those are? They're yeah. like magnetic fluids. Yeah. Uh, of putting those in the ocean, they attract uh, plastic particles. And then he uses a magnet to extract the ferrofluid. Uh, and it like it resolved like I think it was 88% of, uh, of the plastic waste out of his like his sample and they i don't i don't know that he he, did, he didn't do any like scale like you know ocean stuff sure. in a controlled environment but you know it's it's cool that you kind of see these these solutions then come after the fact but that's that i think is is part of the problem is you know and you see it in in the book the mass migration was triggered by technology and then everybody got out there 
and you know you hear rumors of of welfare and the government camps and all that kind of stuff but none of it's to scale yet to support or resolve the situation sure. that's going on matter of fact the farmers take advantage of that situation right and try to try to drive down costs same way that banks are trying to drive down costs by getting a cheaper labor force in other countries yeah. right and there's there's no consideration given to what is going to happen to people once they are displaced. Now, one thing that has been kind of popular uh, in in conversation, and I think it is Sweden, Denmark, Finland, one of the Nordic nations, yeah. uh, has, has this in place, the universal basic income. Right. I think that's uh, Norway. I can't for the life of me remember which, it's not Sweden. which one it is. It's one of them, though. Yeah, they've been doing it for... Maybe a decade now, a little bit longer. Yeah. So if if you're not familiar with with that, it's it's basically sort of a um, a salary that every person gets, regardless of of what they're doing, um, as just sort of a right of you know being a, a citizen. And um, there's been a lot of discussion about the merits of um, you know we're making so many advances in automation, machine learning, and and AI, and all that kind of stuff that there are entire segments of, of industries like customer service, uh, technology, data stuff like I do, um, that will probably in my lifetime become obsolete Gone, yeah. because, because of technology. And one of the proposed solutions to this is sort of having the universal basic income to um, allow people who are literally unable to work um, because of, you know, being automated out of jobs or, you know, whatever to have some, some standard of living. Um, and it's, that is a gross simplification of of the entire conversation, but you know, it's an act of welfare, which, you know, in United States is a constant battle of, you know, the back and forth, whether or not that is a good strategy, um, to, you know, kind of deal with poverty and and inequality and difficult situations. Um, but you don't really get a sense of like the government welfare in this in in this book. You get a sense of like charity um, from one person to another. And I got to thinking like I don't really see that kind of like that kind of social interaction now. I, I think if if something like this were to happen today, we would expect the government to support us. Yeah, to we have would, some sort of... Interv- go to our and I mean, that's, I guess, that's, again, just uh, a product of the times. You know, at this point, there wasn't major governmental uh, programs in place that did all that. And so it was kind of like expected uh, within your communities, whether it's communities of faith, communities of work, or sure. whatever, they, or just your, your local communities, that in times of, of need that you could potentially turn to other people in your communities to, to help out and to have sort of charitable organizations like that. And yeah, over the course of the rest of the 20th century, when you see more and more of that taken away from individuals and given to sort of the government at large, now it's this expectation now that the government is the one that's kind of there to support when things do not go uh, the way that they should. You know, and I... Which I've is a whole to, other. I mean, I've, it's a whole other. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna interject my my politics into this for okay, a, minute a whole because, other can. Of, I, I want to come I, back to the universal income thing. Okay, in a sec, but go ahead. 
Uh, so I, we've I, turned into a talking head. Yeah, show we, now. We, we really have. But it's okay. it's I, you right. know, I, I think it's interesting. It, like it ties the, into the book. The welfare stuff is is so divisive, right? And you get undercurrents of that, you know, in in this book. And I again read an interesting article um, about the states in the United States that uh, accept welfare money versus the money that they pay out in taxes. Yeah. So. If you think about like the Republican Party, like they are very much against welfare, right? And if if there is welfare, there are all these like stringent things that they want to they want to impose. And generally, again, I'm I'm being egregiously general about this. Okay. And I acknowledge this. Um that you know, they're not in favor of like quote unquote handouts, right? From from the government. Right. What I found fascinating is the top 10 states that have a disparity between the amount of money that goes out in welfare versus what comes in. So number one was New Mexico, which voted for, uh, for Hillary in the general election. Yeah. The rest, the, the nine other states, all were, were red in, yeah. in, in the presidential election. Mississippi, Kentucky, West Virginia, Alabama, Arizona, Alaska, Montana, South Carolina, and Indiana. And... I think the, the the thing that is that is fascinating to me about that is that I would assume most of these were in the form of like farm subsidies, right? The government hands out a lot of money, yeah, uh, to, yeah, that, to keep farmers afloat and help plant crops and you know do all of that that kind of stuff. Loans for property, um, you know, with through the USDA and rural housing. Sure. Um, I mean, there's there's a ton of you know government money going into that, but some of those things they're not framed as as welfare and i th- i think that you know when you talk about like universal basic income that will be you know targeted as a welfare program and it'll be interesting to see like how, how people approach that if it ever really became an actual thing yeah um i mean that'd be curious yeah as to what they consider in that uh in that figure of the states what they consider to be if they include just like all government aid and subsidies or what your typical tagged welfare things are you know your food stamps snap whatever yeah unemployment benefits things like that um yeah i mean there's always that kind of like big disparity between uh government money going back to things and it's it's it is kind of contradictory when you see sort of the individual welfare being mostly targeted where it's things that are going to individuals, right? Versus corporate welfare, which is things that are, I guess, subsidies for different industries or investments or, or essentially bribes to say, please keep your money. Please keep your factories here. Here's money. We'll subsidize this. So you'll keep the shit here and you can make your money and all that. And that's more so seen as, you know, investing in American, you know, in American (laughs) entrepreneurship or whatever. But I don't know the thing for me, the, the always the thing for me, what it comes down to, is I think that there's obviously positives and negatives on every on pretty much every issue when you talk about okay the responsibility of the government to do X right whenever yeah. yep. whenever you say okay we're turning over the responsibility of government to provide supplemental uh, you know supplemental money for this or to provide a basic income you centralize you centralize these things and you create again sort of a conglomeration of this of this power and it's always one of those things that i would think if somebody who had like the 
opposite of my interests in mind were in complete control over this. Like how badly could that negatively affect like my own personal standing, my sure. own personal well being. Yep. And I think that that is, you know, an extreme example, but I think that that's something that always needs to be kind of in the forefront of people's minds, whether or not, you know, I, I don't think that anyone can argue against the good natured intention of the idea of, Hey, it's, Sometimes, you know, it's uh, we have people, whatever various reason, whether they've been automated out of their jobs, whether they just have not had the, you know, financial, uh, you know, opportunity or availability to kind of pursue something or whatever, that if we were to subsidize and give people money in order to use it, whether or not to invest in maybe businesses or to pay bills so that they can pursue other things and, and pursue, you know, more transferable work skills because a lot of people it's kind of like well when you've been automated out of a job that you've been you know doing that alone for 10 15 20 years or whatever it's right, hard right. to find an opportunity it's hard to start from the bottom and there are not a lot of transferable skills there it's it's always the you know the intent can be good but in my mind I it's 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 one of those things that's okay so intent can be good but you can still do something in it and and it can be obviously worse off because of that. Cause the thing for me yeah. always, when you talk about turning things over and having more government responsibility in subsidizing or doing any of these things is anytime you're talking about reducing, uh, reducing kind of a freedom that, that people individuals have, because mm -hmm. the flip side of that, obviously when you have universal income, it's that money doesn't just materialize. Like right. you're going to be increasing taxation for that, or you're going to be doing these other things that kind of create, <laughs> sort of more impositions on yeah. people to, to fund this program, um, then you kind of create uh, the sort of imbalance and freedom in that. And it just doesn't seem, I don't know, it doesn't seem so easy as it's oftentimes laid out to be. It, right. It, I can see very much like problems that would arise with it. And that doesn't necessarily decrease the merit of the idea of it. It simply means that sometimes it's tough to... It's tough to take the ideal and make it work with the reality. Yeah. And that's, I think that's the problem in so many facets of like ideological change for how to best approach the, just even the idea now of, of, okay, the way that our workforce is structured for the next 30 years, how the hell do we approach the fact that jobs are just going to vanish? That yeah, literally, literally industries will vanish. People will be out of jobs yep. and, we're not talking about kids in high school now that have an opportunity to kind of have like forward thinking right. sort of education to kind of prepare for those futures and, and have a whole lifetime to train and get those skills. We're talking about people that are in the workforce now that are in their thirties, right. forties and fifties that will not have Me. the time, right. To transfer their skills over immediately into something else. And so yeah. how do we best deal with that? Otherwise you have an unemployment crisis looming at some point, right? No, we'll, or, we'll be fine. We'll, well, we'll maybe become, not an unemployment we'll, crisis we'll because become Instagram influencers well, and Twitch streamers. Well, that's yeah. I mean, it'll here's be fine. That's, you know, and that's, that's the flip side of that is like every time that you lose an industry, like the way that the way that our sort of exchange and environment evolves over time to just create jobs out of nothing. Yeah. Like, like, like you just, I mean, yep. Instagram, social media influencers, all this stuff created out of thin fucking air. Yeah. And you know, it's successful endeavors and people thrive in those industries. And it's not something that anyone would have predicted hell five, 10, 15 years ago. So, you know, I, I guess it's a little bit exaggerative to say that, Oh, we're, in, we're running into an unemployment crisis, but maybe not on a grand scale, but isolated. Yeah, yeah I, absolutely. And so, 
I don't know. I've All just right. talked in circles. So this is, this is going to turn out to be a Mondo episode. We need to bring it back to the, the book. We and, went macro. And, we got to wrap it up. Back micro. What do you think Steinbeck's commentary about the situation the Jodes were in was with, you know, considering the entirety of the text, what do you think like his message would be if he were trying to say, don't repeat this? Or you know, don't don't make these mistakes again. How do you how do you think that? Because I came away with a certain impression. Okay, I mean, I would gather from reading this that he was very much sort of do not do not allow the kind of powerful few to dictate this sort of things. That the power resides through you know organization of the essential basic workforce that the more that you can organize and, and be together, you know, obviously it seems like this is kind of a pro union yeah. uh, book in a, in a traditional union sense. But yeah, I mean that, that would be the kind of the takeaway of that would be don't let, don't let, you know, I, I, I guess care and, and cooperation with your, your fellow man and community and can sort of stem the tide against the the corrupt that would seek to exploit you maybe i don't know yeah that's that's very like marxist kind of like not quite exactly like full-on like worker ownership of of you know public property and all this other stuff but you know kind of in that same sense of the power of people versus the power of capital yeah i think i think absolutely the point that he would make is that it really is the the power of people coming together to affect change as opposed to hoping that somebody else is going to do it for them, whether it be just a decent person who has power um, or people who aren't in the, the same situation. So I want to like wrap our discussion up so we can, okay. we can get to the, the rating um, with this excerpt. And this is, this is going to be pretty big. It's the beginning of, of chapter 14 because I, I think this, for me, like, summed up everything. Okay. Um, so, starts. The Western land, nervous under the beginning change. The Western states, nervous as horses before a thunderstorm. The great owners, nervous, sensing a change, knowing nothing of the nature of the change. The great owners, striking at the immediate thing. The widening government, the growing labor unity, strikes at new taxes, at plans, not knowing these things are results, not causes. Results, not causes. Results, not causes. The causes lie deep and simply. The causes are a hunger in a stomach multiplied a million times, a hunger in a single soul, hunger for joy and some security multiplied a million times, muscles and mind aching to grow, to work, to create multiplied a million times. The last clear, definite function of a man, muscles aching to work, minds aching to create beyond the single need, this is man, to build a wall, to build a house, a dam, and in the wall and house and dam, to put something of man's self, and to man's self take back something of the wall, the house, the dam, to take hard muscles from the lifting, to take clear lines and forms from conceiving. For man, unlike any other organic or inorganic in the, inner, in the universe, grows beyond his work, walks up the stairs of his concepts, emerges ahead of his accomplishments. This you may say of man, when theories change and crash, when schools, philosophies, when narrow, dark alleys of thought, national, religious, economic, grow and disintegrate, man reaches, stumbled forward, 
painfully, mistakenly sometimes. Having stepped forward, he may slip back, but only a half step, never a full step back. This you may say and know it and know it. This you may know when the bombs plummet out of the black plains on the marketplace, when prisoners are stuck like pigs, when the crushed bodies drain filthy in the dust. You may know it in this way. If the step were not being taken, if the stumbling forward ache were not alive, the bombs would not fall. The throats would not be cut. Fear the time when the bombs stop falling while the bombers live, for every bomb is proof that the spirit has not died. And fear the time when strikes stop while the great owners live, for every little beaten strike is proof that step is being taken. And this you can know. Fear the time when man's self will not suffer and die for a concept. For this one quality is the foundation of man's self, and this one quality is man, distinctive in the universe. And I read that, and I was like, "Well, that's that's his that's his point. That's yep. his, that's his thesis, and it's just like interjected in like the first half yeah. of half of the book." But I went back just and snuck in there. Yeah. Um, okay, so I, I kind of wanted to leave on uh, on that note. We got to get to ratings. Yeah, we're, we're, this is a long episode. It is. It's it's going to be a great episode, though. It's it's we haven't had an episode in a month. It's we hadn't had an episode in a month. Um, okay, go for it. Go first. We'll we'll do our ratings. You got it. Uh, I struggled with this one. I wanted I wanted to to put it on the middle shelf, but I I think there's too much in here that you can keep going back to and like picking out of it yeah. uh, that I think it's rereadability is high. I think the discussion factor is high. It's a top shelf book for me. Yeah. I was kind of in that same realm of struggling because it didn't check. It wasn't the most enjoyable story to read. Not sure. that fiction has to be enjoyable, yeah. um, but it, it kind of initially when I closed the book, it sat like right on that cusp of top and middle. But I do think that for the same reasons that you said, just kind of the everything outside that it allows you to kind of facilitate because of 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 the things in the book and because of how rereadable it is and because it's, in my mind, a relatively close to universal uh, recommendation that, yeah, it kind of sneaks in there. So yeah. it's going to sneak in. It'll be top shelf for me. All right. Well, that was easy. Uh, that was easy. You want to you want to tell them our news? Uh, yeah, so we're going to go back to every two weeks. Just bust it out there. Yeah. No, no we're going to go back up. to every two weeks. It, you know, the thing about a month is the, the thought behind it was, hey, it'll give us more time to kind of like digest this. And I know you had some substantial side reading that you need yeah. to do for your own purposes. But we kind of noticed like the last, uh, the last few books, like our approach to how we read these didn't really change. It, it was not fully <laughs> utilizing the, uh, the whole month. No. And uh, it definitely, I don't know, there's something there's something cool and something nice about being in here at a more constant pace. And so yes. never ones to be stubborn about sticking to our guns on something. If, if we don't like it or we like something else, we'll change. Uh, we'll just keep you guys informed. So I think... Yeah, the plan for the rest of the year we're gonna we're gonna go back to two immediately ep- two episodes a month. Yes. So, um, and we're gonna kick it off with uh, an interesting departure because, not to say explicitly comedy, but if I'm I'm trying to go back and think about the books that we've read, and there have not been any um, that I can remember recently mm, with the no. same tone 
as the one that we're about to read. No, at I least mean, lightheartedly. The the only one that had any element of like comedy through and through would have been Sedaris. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, yeah, that was very laden with it, but yeah. in a different stance. So we've we're we're gonna take a little break. We're gonna departure from that. Get a little yes. bit more lighthearted with our read. And uh, I think this is a book we've both started reading, but never actually got around to reading it. Yeah. Um, so there's one box checked off. Two, a little bit lighthearted and definitely a lighter read than what we've had the last little bit. That's the second box checked off. Mm-hmm. Third, it's sci-fi. Yes. And we're, we have not gotten back to true blue sci-fi. Um, I mean, obviously not counting Underground Railroad, even though that right. kind of is still yeah. qualified in there somehow. but. You know, we haven't gotten around to true blue sci-fi since Asimov, so we're going to read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Awesome. And it may it may take us, and we may end up getting into the trilogy. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Um, to overcompensate for our lack of sci-fi in almost a, over a year's time at this point. True. So. But yeah, definitely going to be a fun little read. Uh, much more lighthearted, much more just entertainment-driven rather than... Uh, I guess necessarily drab and yeah. <laughs> dreary. I, I have a feeling we'll, we'll be yeah. we'll be cutting up a lot more in this in this episode For as sure. opposed to talking about like macroeconomics yeah. and uh, yeah. I don't think there's going to be any big extrapolation on our political. Although no. who knows? I don't know. We haven't yeah. we haven't really. I you know I've read probably you know, 50 pages of this book way back, and I don't remember a lick of it. So yeah, it'll be be essentially a fresh read for me. I picked up a copy of it uh, like literally a decade ago, and I read the first like maybe five pages, and I was like, we got distracted doing yeah. something else. Probably going out drinking. And Probably. Yeah. It was around the time in college. Being, so yeah, being, I can't be held ridiculous. accountable for my literary choices then. So this episode is coming out then. We're audibling. It's no longer coming out. Yeah, so second of September, it is going to be coming out on August nineteenth. August nineteenth. Yes. So we're full stop. Boop. Immediately canceling our plans to do one a month. We're going back to two a month. We're good. the gang is back, baby. We're doing it, more books, more rapid. Everyone should be excited. We're doing more books, more rapid fire. Getting in the studio more often. Yes. So I don't have our our second. Uh, book up for uh, for September yet, but I will tweet it out um, so that everybody's kind of got the uh, kind of got the the book slated. Um, if you're picking your episodes and you can't keep up with the two week uh, or two week pace, then you know sure. you, you can you, you can, can pick and choose. choose. We'll go back to giving you. A, we'll we'll have a, a few out in advance. Yeah, in print somewhere. So I'm I'm excited about it. I've personally felt just kind of empty, even though I was doing all this this reading on the side. Um, you know, I'm I'm doing it for research purposes, and even though I find it uh, very interesting, I don't find it as enjoyable as doing the podcast and reading the stuff that we're reading for the podcast. So absolutely, really excited to go back to two, to every two weeks. So yeah. uh, August nineteenth, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, we'll have some book come out on Labor Day uh, after that. And uh, yeah, that's our episode for this week or this two week, whatever. This episode. Yeah, this, I still need to banish week. the word week from, from podcast, but yeah. we'll until we out. decide that it's not enough and then we go weekly. Absolutely. And we go three times a week. All right, kids. Uh, we'll talk to you guys in two weeks. Thank you for listening to this episode. And until next time. 